Welcome spooks and spirits, ghouls and ghosts. Take a seat around the campfire. But beware, this podcast is haunted. That was that sounded so sad. <laughs> oh, like it was coming through your COVID fog. <laughs> yes. Hello, everyone. Hello. I, we are here. I am recording the day, hours after I got my second shot of the vaccine. And so if I start getting weird, you'll know why. That's right. But I'm very grateful to be having this uh, vaccine coursing through my veins. If you have the means to get it, uh, please do. Um, and for everyone listening who is not in the U.S. and is very angry at us for the bad kids getting first access to the vaccine, I'm very sorry. Um, but just, if you like us as people, yeah. um, the fact that I get my second vaccine tomorrow will probably save my life. And possibly that means this podcast. So There you go. There you go. If that's how you have to think of it. I've also been thinking about it in terms of like... Yeah, it's like that one class where it's like, oh, the kids keep acting up, and so this is why we can't have nice things, except for then we do get the nice thing. Um, it's because us, the good kids who have been trying to do this right this entire time, have had to put up with the bullshit this whole year. And so, yeah, now we, uh, we get yeah. our reward. That's a good <laughs> so. way of thinking about it, and our reward is... Not dying. Yay. Not dying. Yay. Also, Huzzah. there's just been so many people in this country have died, and I don't mean to start this out on a weird uh, Yeah, vibe. this actually has taken a weird change. Um, anyway. anyway, I'm glad to have gotten my vaccine. I'm glad you're getting your vaccine so we can touch in person soon. And I'm going to hug your neck. Uh, okay, so I have a really <laughs> weird question. Yes. Are you Pfizer or Moderna? I am Pfizer. Oh. I know. Uh, (laughs) Did you know that it's like the status vaccine? I did not. I just got whatever the hell was available to me. I went to the mass vaccination site here in in town where they pump out like thousands of people a day. Literally Um, over 100,000 a day. Not not 100,000 a day. More more in the realm of like 10,000. Yeah. Okay, I might have just misplaced to zero. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they did set some sort of record. They set a record. Well, they set a record for twelve thousand in one day. Um, okay, that's probably what I read a few weeks ago. Do you like how I just like pick a number and like? Yeah, yeah. it's probably a hundred thousand. I'm like, then the entire metro area of Grand Rapids would be done in like three days. Let me ask you this: Was a hundred thousand like per day one of the goals of Joe Biden? And that's where my brain is getting confused. I have no idea, but let's move on. Um, okay. <laughs> well, anyways, the reason I asked you about Foderna. Foderna? Foderna. <laughs> Moderna versus F- Pfizer. Foderna. <laughs> is, is that humans, uh, our society, uh, yeah. finds a way to class everything. Yeah. The newest class war, the newest status symbol is if you got Pfizer, you are of an elite status. That's the elite vaccine. Whereas Moderna, or like you said, Dolly Parton juice. Dolly Parton juice. Love it. Let's work at that um, nine to five. Yeah, that's right. Um, anyway, so that's like the lesser status. And then the Johnson mm-hmm. & Johnson one is the lowest status of them all. And I feel like talking about class status and everything that goes into it <laughs> yeah. is a really great, great way to segue into our subject, which is the French Revolution. Vive la revolution. <laughs> ah, yes. Side note. If you speak French, please know that we don't. And we're going to butcher just, that language today. maybe skip this one. I took two years of French in college and I still can't. I'm so sorry. Oh God, your, language, took... 
is so weird. Yes, I tried so hard with Italian. I took Italian three times, four times, mm -hmm. and I flunked three of the, like, I only passed it once. Oh. And so that, and let me tell you, it sucked. It sucked the whole time. Um, I'm bad at languages. Yeah. The only thing I ever learned from Italian is that um, the word squalo means shark. Oh. That's it's like fun. the only thing I've retained. Okay. Very useful. <laughs> but we're not talking about Italy. Nope. We're talking about other we're bloodthirsty about creatures. The uh, the French populist party. <laughs> hey. Hey. <laughs> Segways, folks. We got them. We got them for days. All right. So the French Revolution. Um, the French Revolution actually occurs during a 10-year period. It starts the 5th of May, which I actually think is when this episode comes out. Is it? That would be super convenient and like we planned it, which we never, ever do. I know. I I, I do think so, though. I Well, the 5th of May might be a Wednesday. And then no, 5th this... of May is a Wednesday. Okay, so this will come out on the 6th. I think it's actually coming out next week. Cunt. 29th. Right. Well, we tried. So following week... Uh, the French Revolution started 5th of May, 1789, and it continued until the 9th of November, uh, 1799. Uh, it's a 10-year period, um, and uh, specifically, it's 10 years, 6 months, and 4 days. Oh. I don't know why I felt the need to calculate that, but I did. Um, Is there any di dispute um, on the timeline uh, based on the fact that they changed their entire fucking calendar at one point? Oh, that's a very good question, and I did not catch that one. Oh, do okay. they turn? Do they change it during the during this course? Oh my God! Yes, they do. Okay. Oh. Um. Yeah. At some point, well, go on, because this comes later. So I okay. Don't All right, we'll come this. back to that. Um. So there's actually uh the French go through a number of revolutions. Uh, this is mm. very much the most famous of the three. Um. And if you really want to get down into the nitty gritty of what a revolution or an uprising is, there's actually many more than three. Um. And there were a lot of different causes. Uh, sort of a perfect storm for a revolution. And I do want you to pay attention to these and think about America as it is today and maybe be a little uncomfortable. Um, Why, so Kate? for example, there was a population boom. Okay. They had too many people and not enough work. Now, right now we are not experiencing that in America. In fact, we no. do not have enough people to do all the work that needs to be done post-COVID. are killing the baby industry. I'm Gross. just worried about that. <laughs> Gross. Yeah, we're doing our part to destroy the babies. I don't... Baby I don't, industry. Well, the I don't think that industry. sounds good either. <laughs> Baby co. There you go. Um, so the, they had a population boom. Uh, their population uh, effectively rose by 20% and there strictly wasn't enough work for all of those people. So with this, this uh, jump in people, that put more demand on food. Uh, but there were also a number of bad harvests in the years leading up to the French Revolution. Um, so now we have too many people, not enough food. And that's mm. going to cause food prices to skyrocket. Um, and I know what you're thinking right away. Let them eat cake. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I do want to, I just want to put out there, and I'm sure you all know this already, Marie Antoinette never actually said that. Mm -hmm. um, first off, she probably wouldn't have said cake. She would have said something like broche, brioche, brioche. however you say that. Um, mm -hmm. And actually... Uh, that quote is about a hundred years previous to Marie Antoinette's life. Uh, so she never said, let them eat cake. Um, somebody else um, in a satire piece, and I don't remember what, um, mm. said, you know, oh, the people cannot afford to buy bread. And she said, fine, let them eat cake. 
um that was not marie antoinette that never happened um so we have rising food prices we have a population Mm -hmm. boom and then we have incredible government debt um so because of us right yeah a little bit um (laughs) because they funded the american revolution as well Mm -hmm. as the anglo-french war that kind of pulled apart the british forces that allowed us to beat the british Mm-hmm. Um, but then they also had extreme court ca- court costs. Uh, the life at Versailles was incredibly um, expensive, and that wow. that money was largely borne by the poor. And so that brings us to a system of government that I that is very important to this. So in the um, the ancient regime, the monarchy and in, the in ancien France, regime. Yeah, I don't know how to say it. Fuck it. Yeah. I'm not even going to try. I'm very American and everybody has to deal with that. Yeah. So in this ancien regime. <laughs> there you go. Just put a... <laughs> if you just snarl through your nose, well, then you've got oh, it. God. Yeah. I don't have a problem with France at all, actually. They are... I have a uh, slight problem with some parts of France. And it, it kind of comes from... They're phobic, but other than that, that. And they're also hugely Islamophobic, so... Oh, gross. Yeah, they can, yeah, oh yeah, they're passing all kinds of anti-hijab laws um, right now, and they're like, oh, it's for the ladies! And it's like, and all of the Muslim women are like, um, we like... I mean, it's a personal choice to cover right. your head for your religion. And, and that's, that's throughout all of Islam. Yeah, and that's not for a government to decide. And, and a government deciding that you can't wear it is just as repressive as a government deciding that you must wear it. So... <sighs> Yeah, France, you can kind of fuck off. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Actually, don't say sorry. Every time we criticize a people or a government or a country, we're criticizing their power structure. We're not criticizing individuals. Yes, and also, uh, this is also coming from a place of knowing that there are a ton of systematic problems with our own country. So it's not like we're pretending that we're better than them. Right. We shit on America more than any place else. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so um, so this governmental debt was borne largely by the poor. So they had um, in this ancient regime, the ancien regime, uh, which is the, the traditional kingship and the traditional ruling government of the kingdom of France, um, they had what they call the three estates. So yeah. the first estate is the clergy. So what you owe the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. The second estate was the nobility. And both of those estates together had just about 5% of the population that they were representing. The third estate were commoners. And those Everybody commoners, else. right, 95% of the population. The 99%. <laughs> <laughs> and so those people, um, so the, the, the church was not taxed. The uh, nobility was not taxed. Both of those had the ability to benefit from the taxes levied on the 95%, the third estate. Oh, God, this sounds so familiar. They also had this third estate system, or three estate system, Mm -hmm. where they met, each estate met individually to vote on things and to make decisions, these three parliaments. And uh, what would happen frequently is that the twin pillars, the -hmm. church and the nobility, would often use their power vote power vote to outvote the third estate yeah because they're so they were constantly fucking the commoners Mm -hmm. but when that's 95 percent of your people maybe you should think about it before somebody thinks up the guillotine yeah you know yeah um so the the three estates uh functioned like a parliament and as things started to go downhill uh in an attempt to right the ship King Louis XVI, who was a very weak king, 
uh, asked the third estate to gather, I'm sorry, the three estates. Um, mm-hmm. So they were called the, uh, the estates general. Mm-hmm. And this was the first time they had gathered since 1614. Jesus Christ. Exactly. So they were kind of dead in the water. Now, mm. the nobility had the ability um, to spend taxes. Mm. They could decide where the money would go, but they didn't have the right to levy taxes. That goes with the estates general. Gotcha. And so the estates general, uh, when this council would get together, which was very infrequent, um, they would pass small one-time uh, taxes, but they wouldn't build a system that distributed taxes fairly. Um, and then the other two pillars are constantly pushing tax onto the commoners, the rural um, and urban poor. Mm. So as this goes on, things start to get out of hand and the Estates General uh, pulls out some radical measures in order to really uh, remove power from this weak king and try and right the ship. Mm. Um, if you're familiar with the um, motto of the nation of France, Liberty, Egality, Fraternity. Was that so their motto? It is. Oh. I, I believe so. I don't know I'm when that started. Yes. I, feel okay. like, I feel like that's right. Liberty, Egality. Well, I, I, I recognize, isn't that like a, a which philosopher? Voltaire, probably. Yeah. or Oh, people are yelling at us. Okay. <laughs> right. Somebody's yelling at their radio uh, right now. I'm sorry, guys. I didn't do this um, part of the research. <laughs> I looked at it a million times and I just didn't. Yeah, Honestly, so- I really struggled with the subject because it's very complicated. Yeah. So anyways, um, so those those three ideas are kind of in this birth of um, these radical measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these radical measures included uh, state control of the Catholic Church, which means you no longer have to pay tithes to the Catholic Church. You can only give those of your own heart. Um, it also... Um, included universal suffrage. Oh, hey. I know, right? We didn't even have that here. And that includes women. Women were actually treated very fairly in France um, uh, pre and post revolution. Uh, So when, um, for example, Michigan was known as New France, well, Mm -hmm. Michigan and a number of other places. But uh, during the fur trade, when Michigan was part of New France, uh, women who came here to marry fur traders who didn't have uh, enough women in their lives, basically, Mm-hmm. they had to be given the same rights that they would have had in France. Hell yeah. So they got to maintain their property. They had a voice um, in local courts. Uh, they were actually very powerfully set up. Wow. Uh, and and so, at some point it got taken away from them. Yeah, well. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> it does. Um, anyway, uh, so they also, in addition to universal suffrage, uh, abolished the feudal state. Mm-hmm. So in the medieval setup of most of Europe, it was feudalism. And feudalism is largely the king owns all the land. He breaks it up amongst his family and friends. Sure. Uh, they are the lords. Lords then break up their own large holdings of property into small mm-hmm. holdings of property. And then any peasant who lives on their land, uh, in addition to working their own land, owes labor and taxes or first fruits, um, the portion of their total yeah. earnings to that Lord who then pays it to the King right. um, and takes, you know, a little off the top for himself. So that feudal state was abolished. Mm. Uh, now, um, if you tithe to the church and you want a refund, you can get it subject to redemption. Hmm. Um, if you have, um, there's, there's no more, 
inequality within the court system. So if you are a nobleman who breaks the law, you are subject to the same laws as a poor man. Um, so equality of punishment, no favoritism to lo uh, uh, nobles. Um, mm -hmm. You no longer own a natus, which is a portion of your income anytime a new pope or bishop ascends. Um, ascends to their investiture. Sure. Uh, they abolished game laws. So now if you hunt in the forest, it's everybody's forest. It's not just the king's, you can't hunt the king's stags. Mm -hmm. um, and they also had equality in taxes. So the goal now is that we're going to tax the nobility. And because the church is subject to state ownership, we don't so much have to worry about the taxes there, but um, it certainly is uh, more egalitarian. These are fantastic changes, uh, but unfortunately for the nobility, it basically destroyed aristocratic life. They no longer have income mm. from this feudal state. Um, they no longer are, are guaranteed the privileges of nobility. And so um, the people are now kind of tasting power for the first time. And I'm not going to say that's bad. Uh, no. I am for a populist uprising because 95% of people should not bear the tax burden without representation that is equal to those who do not have the 5%. Yeah. Fucking pay attention, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot about the French Revolution that's like, yeah, and it makes me feel uneasy because I know where it's going. And I'm like, mm. ah, ah, ah. <laughs> Okay, hang on. We all do know that, yes, the French Revolution kills a bunch of people. Mm. Uh, thousands, literally thousands. I'll give you an exact number later. But it also created the kingdom of the, the, the I'm sorry, the Republic of France. Mm -hmm. And you can't argue with that. I mean, France isn't perfect, just like America isn't perfect. Mm -hmm. But a republic is always better than a monarchy. Or maybe that's just my American speaking. I mean, I think, I don't know. Yeah, I, th I think my perspective on this was like kind of skewed because I think weirdly we at least from at least how I learned about it was kind of still from like an anglicized perspective sure and so we're like learning the difference between like the evolution of we were taught like oh england is evolution in their government system and france's revolution and hmm. it was kind of like in a way that like was more favorable to the english system of like gradual freedoms um because it was you know a lot less bloodshed altogether sure. i think um so think about just for a second who sets the american learning standards mm -hmm. uh it's typically set by congress mm -hmm. and congress is primarily composed of millionaires yeah yeah no i think i'm thinking back on it now i feel like that was definitely a lot, a lot more calculated than i yep. you know when you think about like why am i and I don't, I don't know that it was necessarily that the way I learned it was like English good, French bad. I think maybe part of it was like my upbringing as like follow the rules and you'll be okay. Yeah. But follow was, the rules and you'll be okay is also supporting the monarchy and supporting yeah, these powerful su structures. Well, it supports, you know, the privileged class of which I, you know, which I was born into, which is, yeah. you know, that's just. You know. On top of that, we struggle with that in the BLM movement. So yeah. when people say. Uh, no justice, no peace. And mm. then, um, you know, you get people who are outside the movement, like my mom, 
Uh, or, I mean, who, yeah, just like many people in our white middle class American culture who are just like, what do you mean, like, abolish the police? Like, the police are here to help us. And then, you know, people who are not in that privileged class are like, they aren't here to help us. So. Right. Well, and, and like I said, with this no justice, no peace, uh, a lot of people think of justice and peace as the same thing. Mm. because they've never had to experience that disparagement of not getting justice. Yeah. Um, so when people are being loud in the streets and they're not being peaceful, some people like my mom mm-hmm. get upset that they're not asking quietly for their rights. Right. Um, Even though when they do, they just get ignored and they just get yeah, ignored. They get mowed down. Anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this, this idea of do you want justice or do you want peace because mm-hmm. my mom really wants quiet. She wants everybody to be quiet and say nice things. And she I don't so want. I care keep, about I'm going to keep like gently saying it's not just your mom. I don't want to put all of this on your mom. Um, I don't want to paint a brush outside of what I know. <laughs> exactly. You know? Well, I'm going to paint a brush and say that like I'm a recovering member of that community. Like you know, like I that's how I grew up. Um, I wasn't like particularly conservative, but like. I was kind of like the nice moderate liberal where it's just like, you know, just, you know, do what you're told and like comply and whatever. Like I, I didn't really think, have to think about it because of, you know, wh- who I am. Um, and so I'm coming out of that and it, yeah, to like have to grapple with these issues and, and think like, well, oh, maybe compliance and just following the rules and following the laws isn't justice like isn't good isn't it's not worth the price it's not inherently good it doesn't have to be bad right it's just it's complicated right yeah god it's also fucking gray i hate a gray area i hate it i love it but it's it's also sticky and (laughs) uncomfortable and being uncomfortable is doing the work so that's okay Mm -hmm. all right so we've destroyed the aristocratic lifestyle Mm -hmm. they lose their money and their privileges Um, And we've created basically the idea of free radical individuals where you can do anything so long as it's not prohibited by law. That is very French. Yeah, right? (laughs) Super French. And also, ultimately, rather American. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're Muslim. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or Um, any shade of tan. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, fuck. We'll never get it right, but we try like hell. Uh, Anyway, so um, as all of this upheaval is going on within the country, it's making the nations around France feel very very threatened. They don't want their people getting a whole lot of ideas. And so those nations turn to war as well. And so they're, um, you know, battling against France, kind of uh, poking at the weak spots, and it's Mm. making everything worse. So that's why there's so much upheaval um, it's turning people against each other. There's division inside the nation. There's enemies without the nation. It's it gets really complicated. So eventually, they yeah. do this. This general assembly effectively creates the first French Republic, 1792. Mm-hmm. By 1793, they execute Louis the Sixteenth, um, and that was led up by a man named Maximilien Robespierre. Mm, Robespierre what a guy. was a lawyer and a statesman. Mm-hmm. And he was chosen for power because he seemed unflappable and incorruptible. And so he creates uh, or is part of the creation of what's called the Committee for Public Safety. Mm-hmm. The irony, this right? Such a, this has such a like futuristic dystopian vibe to it. Like, Doesn't it? It's got a little big brotherness to it. It's very, yeah, it's very that like ironic name <laughs> of a bureaucratic organization i love it Um, i completely agree so robespierre 
becomes a effectively a bloodthirsty despot. He turns on his friends, he reports people. He himself signed over 542 arrest warrants, and some of those were for mass arrests. Um, so he begins effectively what's known as the reign of terror. Mm-hmm. And you can say that in French as well, but I'm not going to. It's just like la terre. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the idea of the reign of terror was to eradicate the counter-revolutionaries who were standing in the way. Anybody who was not with supporting this revolution of France, anybody who was yeah. not fighting for France is now an enemy, a terrorist, this a is traitor. Where they lose me. <laughs> huh? This is where they lose me. Yeah. I'm just like, hey, listen, I'm all for individualism and like freedom and all that, but like when you're killing people for not compl- like that seems like antithetical to your own philosophy but that's just me i'm just radically I'll be honest, pro-life I kind of get always. it. <laughs> there's there's a couple times where i'm like i think we should just like and i don't mean this with my heart of hearts and no. my thoroughly thought out brain no no but there are some times when i'm like everybody who doesn't support you know like universal health care should just be round up and put in jail you know like they're just in our way and like, and then don't I'm like, ooh, Robespierre, how would you call me in there? Don't do that. Good <laughs> yeah, I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying to be better than myself. No, I'm no, sorry. No, 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 we do not want to vote whole bunch of political prisoners, even though they're wrong. And uh, <laughs> well, anyway. let me challenge that idea for just a second. Mm-hmm. If you are a member of the GOP and you view poor black urban people mm-hmm. or people of color, yeah. Um, or uh, not to leave anybody out, um, but Native Americans and indigenous people mm-hmm. as political opponents, mm-hmm. is it not in your best interest to put as many of them in jail as possible? I mean, that's what they're doing to exactly. Minorities. So can I just do that to them? Uh, it's complicated. I know. And the word, thing is, no, I just have to be better than the GOP. Just, we just have to outnumber them is my strategy. And we have been successful. But anyway, okay, so we're eradicating the counter-revolutionaries in the reign of terror. Um, over 16,000 people are executed by guillotine. <sighs> Bet you didn't know the number was that high, did you? That's so much. Yeah, that's so many people. That's like and they an didn't entire even university. Have, they didn't even have the whole choppy boy system that's like 10 guillotines in one. Right, right. No, it was individual one. It was, it was, uh, that's so it much. was custom. It was, what's the word? Uh, tailored. Bespoke. bespoke. That's the word I want. Yes, it was bespoke murder. Do you want to know the last time the guillotine was used as a public execution in France? I'm going to tell you, but I, or I'm going to let you tell me, but I do already know. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I don't know. The, this is just coming out my ass. I've read it before, but isn't it like the 1970s? 1977, the same year Star Wars A New Hope came out. Ah! Yeah. That's wild. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I mean, in yeah. some ways, I guess it's kind of humane, which is how it was invented, but... It is... Ugh. It is more assured of being painless and more assured of success than, say, uh, both the shot and the electric chair. Yeah. And also being hanged or, you know, burned at the stake, which is how they used to do it. So I I don't want to be uh, (laughs) killed by anyone. Is my answer to that. <laughs> I, I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, so we've got this reign of terror. 16,000 people are being executed. Uh, in addition to these, there are massacres. We had massacres in the street. 
there were royalist and Jacobin uprisings. Mm -hmm. uh, they also had external enemies who were tearing the country apart. Uh, the civil war has led to internal division and economic stagnation. So things are really getting worse and it's all piling up on King Louis until uh, his execution in 1793. Yeah. Um, so overall, the big causes of, you know, as we're, as we're talking about the French Revolution, the big causes, monarchy, nobility, uh, government, however you want to think of it, um, they're either unable or unwilling to manage social and economic inequality. Mm. Just like in America, mm. the government debt, extra people, plus bad harvests created insane food prices. Uh, it also made crime go up uh, in addition to starvation. So this was also part of a social revolution around the world. Uh, for the first time, people were able to get together and discuss ideas. So this was caused by the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. People were watching what happened with the uh, American experiment with great interest. Uh, it also was part of a literary and educational um, revolution. So we yeah. were mass educating people. More people than in ever history before were able to read and write. So they were able to read new ideas and share those ideas with others. Oh. We also had the Industrial Revolution making printing cheaper than easier. So those people who are yeah. now reading and writing can share those ideas on a mass level. Mm -hmm. um, it also, there was a big push in philosophy in the 17th, um, 17th century and into the 18th century uh, for these ideals of individualism, liberty, and equality. Mm -hmm. And we also had an interesting subculture called coffeehouse culture. Yeah. So coffeehouse culture spread across Europe mm -hmm. uh, and it was literally going and getting coffee and sharing ideas with people. The superior um, beverage. I'm just kidding. I really don't care. I, I will fight both, you. I will fun. fight you through this Zoom screen. <laughs> it's disgusting and it don't, tastes like dirt. Don't come for me, people. I love both tea and coffee equally. I just anyway, so these... More. In these coffee houses, people were discussing these ideas of these governors and philosophers and statesmen, mm -hmm. um, and they created this sort of um, populist public sphere where the seat of power, uh, people were realizing, was no longer in Versailles, but instead mm -hmm. amongst the people. They were starting to realize their numbers and their powers and what they could do, and they actually held much more sway than Versailles. Mm -hmm. Paper flip, dramatic. Paper flip. <laughs> I'm writing everything on Dan's like fancy GE paper, and it's so thick, and it's all um. Is it made of graphing space? paper? Oh. And like it just makes me write really pretty, and I like it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so when the Estate General yeah uh, came through, they, their first changes were fairly modest. They were like, mm -hmm. okay, here are some little changes that you can make, King Louis. Uh, and Louis basically was very resistant to that. The court was quite reactionary, mm -hmm. um, especially Marie Antoinette. She does have some blame here. Uh, as much as Sofia yeah. Coppola would not wish you to believe that she does. Well, okay. I will get on my Marie Antoinette soapbox here a little bit. Um, okay. Because I am also a huge fan of the Sofia Coppola movie. Of course um, you are. And also a huge you fan. You hipster trash. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> um, it's so pretty. It is. Um, it's a very pretty movie. <laughs> And also, uh, uh, the Marie Antoinette Royal Diaries book was one of my faves growing up. Sure. Of um, course it was. You hipster I... trash. That's I'm kidding. Nice. I'm totally kidding. If anything, that's super basic. Um, <laughs> I'm way more basic than I am hipster. Um, I think Marie Antoinette is a very convenient scapegoat in most of this. Um, people were very uh, anti or 
they were very xenophobic. They never yep. liked her. She was Austrian. They called her an Austrian spy. Yeah. Uh, she was beautiful, but they were just like really mean to her all the time. Um, there's a whole lot of drama with her. Um, oh, also podcast recommendation. Noble Blood um, by Dana Schwartz um, has a fabulous um, episode. I think it's their very first episode on Marie Antoinette and the Reign of oh, Terror. Oh, cool. So I'll listen should, to that. That sounds great. You should listen to that. It's very good. Um, but anyway, I have a soft spot in my heart for her. Uh, her, her relationship with, with Louis is... Oh, my God fascinating and terrible but i mean like in a kind of like an awkward and cute way not like the like really mean way that we're used to from our monarchs but um yeah i think they were just kind of really dumb and not well, they were so to, young too they were so young they also if anybody's hearing like tipping tapping scraping in the yeah, background that it. is my dog <laughs> he's normally not allowed down when i'm recording but he's gotten into this habit of throwing an absolute shit fit if he can't be with me. Yeah. And so the barking would have been very intense. As do I. Yeah. Um, well, sorry, I've kept I've kept us away too long. I've just been in my house screaming this entire year. Um, Is that why your voice sounds like that? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh no. Sorry. Uh, it is. The only uh, way I can show love is through burns. Yeah. No, that was a pretty solid one. Um. Anyway. Uh. Anyway. So. It's not like I feel like they are totally off the hook because they did make some bad decisions. But I think they were also really swayed by poor counsel and, like, they were really young and just doing the best they fucking could. I mean, King Louis didn't even know how sex worked. How how is he supposed to know how to run a country? Right. Isn't that sad? Yeah. These were were wildly undereducated children who were put in Mm -hmm. because monarchy systems are inherently And they were completely fucking cloistered at Versailles and didn't have any idea what was so like when you know everyone was like oh Marie Antoinette said oh let them eat cake no she didn't say that but on the other hand she didn't really know what was going on anyway so it's not that's why so many people believed it um she was actually quite generous personally um she was she donated to a lot of charities and like had a big heart for the poor she just didn't really have a good handle on what was going on and also she was a consort it's not her job to fix things it's her job to be pretty yep. and wear pretty clothes. And that's yep. she And she was, was saddled with a weak ass king. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I think that's I think that's a very, very, very fair assessment. Um, but I, I also anyway, do want to say not. she did have a hand in it. Okay. That's fair um, enough. <laughs> yeah. All right, where do we leave off? Louis is trying to obstruct this estate general. Uh, this third mm-hmm. estate is coming to power. They're realizing that they represent 95% of the people. They institute these radical changes and Louis tries to obstruct them. Uh, mm-hmm. And he was actually rumored he was going to call on the, the first estate. Remember, that's the Catholic Church yeah. and bring in the Swiss guard from Va- from the Vatican. Oh. And that upset a lot of his military. Interesting. Um, yeah. So the estate uh, calls themselves now the National Assembly. Uh, they mm-hmm. sit in at Versailles uh, just off, off the court of a tennis court tennis and they court. refuse to leave yeah yes i love that they refuse to leave until they have a new constitution mm-hmm. um this had loads of popular support including again lots of military support so louis is now alienating his soldiers that's not a good idea you gotta have the military on your side as we yeah know. yeah <laughs> from a good um so eventually this leads to the storming of the bastille from my understanding i i'm sorry if i am getting this out of order uh, my friends, I really did try to like parse it all out. But mm-hmm. from my understanding, mm-hmm. uh, July 14th, which is Bastille Day, um, mm-hmm. there was a military fortress. It was eight towers. They were all about 80 feet tall. 
in on in the the rounds you know how paris is set up like spoken wheel yeah yeah yeah. they've got all the the districts circling yes out from the so center. this is sitting in the fourth 11th and 12th district mm-hmm. um and it was called the bastille and it was people think of it popularly as a jail right is that what you think of when yeah the storming of the bastille there mm. it, it was rumored to hold thousands of prisoners and over its life it probably did but at the time of the storming there were actually only seven people inside who were being held for crime whoa really yeah four forgers uh uh, two no noblemen who were engaging in uh inappropriate behavior oh and one murderer okay so this is more of like a symbolic like we have your big important building kind of a takeover there also were a lot of arms and gunpowder storage gotcha, there gotcha. and that was important as well um so yes uh they stormed the bastille uh the administration who's working this jail and armory uh are all killed mm-hmm. and um i actually could not find out what happens to the seven who were imprisoned literally nobody knows i'm kidding i'm, I'm sure, sure somebody I'm sure who's smarter so than me people know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. And please tell us because I'd be really interested to know what happens. Yeah. Um, So uh, these popular people, populist uprising happens. They literally tear down the Bastille building. There is no trace of this building left, except uh, there were, I think, underground. Part of the support structure of one of the towers was discovered um, about 60 years later. And they removed that and put that a hundred yards away from where it was originally into a park. Okay. So part of the Bastille, the bricks that were there is still there, but that's the only sign of this building um, today. Mm -hmm. However, as a memorial, because Bastille Day is still widely celebrated in France, it's like their 4th of July. Yeah. uh, They have an outline that shows the edges of the buildings kind of laid into the pavement from what I understand. Mm -hmm. I haven't been to France, but I want to go someday. (laughs) So in order to hold Paris, because it's, it's bubbling, it's boiling, it's falling apart. uh, They name a new head of the national guard, Mm -hmm. the Marquis de Lafayette. (gasps) Lafayette. Thank you. I was hoping you would do that. (laughs) I did want to include a little bit about Lafayette. He's a big figure in American history. Um, and he is a very large feature. Um, well, not very large. He's a pretty large feature in the French Revolution. So um, I think he was just known by both countries as like a cool dude. And yeah. like people just generally trusted him. Yeah, <laughs> like, he he no had worry. a lot. He, he also was quite a people pleaser. If you ever want to mm. read a good book, uh, read Lafayette and the Not So United States by mm. Sarah Vowell. And it, oh, love her. I love her. Um, so Lafayette and the Not So United States talks about mm. his time in America uh, under George Washington, but also when he came back as a venerated soldier of the American Revolution. We saw his carriage at the Studebaker, Studebaker Museum. Museum. Yes, we did. Mm-hmm. That's right. You and I. It was very fancy. Uh, it was very cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, Lafayette uh, is now the leader of this National Guard. Uh, leadership at this point in time, though, is still pretty dangerous because it's being lynched. Uh, Lafayette could not prevent the lynching of many leaders. Mm. Um, they have this abolition of feudalism and a new constitution is drafted not by none other than Lafayette and Thomas Thank Jefferson. You. Oh, fuck. Um, oh, Thomas Jefferson, you old Francophile. That's right. Uh, so Lafayette's National Guard 
uh, largely supports further populist uprisings and they're joining in uh, the rioters who are upset about food prices. In fact, uh, some of them break off and they go to where Marie Antoinette is. They ransack the palace. She has to escape with her life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when Louis agrees to become a constitutional monarch. And he's no longer <laughs> called the King of France, but the King of the French. And that's a okay. very important definition. Yeah. Yeah. It's like being assistant manager or assistant to the manager. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, the reign of terror, we have all these uh, public executions. People are still not happy. All, even with all of these changes and these concessions put in by the nobility, it's not enough. The mm -hmm. equality has been too great. Mob rule sometimes takes over. Uh, there is um, a fervor uh, for revolution. There's also anti-clerical sentiment, accusations of treason by the Committee of Public Safety, so on the 5th of September, Bertrand Barrar says, let's make terror the order of the day. And Robespierre responds, let's make it justice, not terror. But as the head of the Committee of Public Safety, that's pretty ironic because he was basically the de facto wartime government. Yeah. Um, they were instituted April 6th and uh, they supported the radicals known as the sans culot. Sans culot, yeah. That's right. Uh, so sans culot means without breaches. So Jen, did you wear culottes in high school? Uh <laughs> Yes, yes, yep, I did. They were very popular. Wait, no, okay, but they, they were gaucho pants mostly. Yes, yes. Yeah. I was going to say there is a difference between gauchos and culottes because, and the only reason I'm getting defensive about this is because I am the proud owner of two pairs of culottes at this moment. Sure. And I've seen them. They're, they're, making, a, them. they're coming, making a comeback, baby. Yeah, so um, are gauchos. No, I refuse. I'm sorry. <laughs> but they are, and we are not in charge, and that's okay. I had, I had, a couple pairs of gauchos and there's just something a little different about them and i i feel like that sounds xenophobic of me to say it's not it's just the style of the pant it has nothing to do with the name sounding spanish or anything i'm no, just no, like no 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 yeah they're it's not a good style pants of pants that look like skirts it's weird yeah like it's weird yeah shorts but like capri like wide leg super wide leg capris yeah Don't. so that when you're standing like a normal person it looks like you're wearing a skirt not a good look. Early 2000s, man. All right. So uh, the Sankula uh, were, it means that they did not wear breeches. Breeches were the pants of the nobility. They were highly mm. tailored and they were expensive, usually made with like white linen. Yeah. Uh, culottes were the working man's pants. Yeah. Uh, they were less More tailored. Like long pants. Long pants. Exactly. Yeah. So um, it's not like they were saying, we're not wearing pants. Right. Saying, we're not wearing those We're pants. not wearing breeches specifically. Yeah. Um, so these these army of uh, young working class people, um, they are getting more and more violent. Uh, they are actually being used as kind of like a mini army by dear old Robespierre. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, even though he started being this unflappable, coolly rational, incorruptible person, this lawyerly figure, uh, he is ultimately kind of at the head of this reign of terror. Mm -hmm. um, he believed in universal suffrage. He wanted to end clerical um celibacy he was an advocate for the voiceless uh he let them he wanted to let them join the national guard he wanted to let them have the right to vote and to be elected and to be taxed equally mm -hmm. um and so all of these are, are very noble things but when you let your uh inability to differentiate between what is justice and what is violence get away from you yeah. you corrupt your entire movement and he actually became a threat to the movement um, so, uh, he 
reorganized the revolution, uh, the Revolutionary Tribunal, and he said, if you aren't actively fighting for France, you are her traitor and her enemy. Mm. Um, he actually was quite a prolific speaker. He made 900 speeches, mm-hmm. but he also, like I said, ordered 542 arrests. Yeah. So, and what? I think, uh, not not to dovetail, this isn't like a worse thing, but I think it's a, a bar- around this time where they start doing all the like shit with the calendar. Oh, um, okay. I don't know that. Is, are, is that part of your story? No, it's not. I just it's just a fun fact that, that I know. I don't um, know anything about it. So basically in in short, it doesn't really matter, but there there was a big movement to kind of secularize French culture because a lot of it was based around the Catholic Church um, because and the, the Catholic, Catholic Church Gregorian was calendar. It will and it was just like such a big part of French culture because it was the state religion it's not like it is here and so when they're like it's not going to be the state religion anymore they wanted to be like and also we're going to invent our own calendar and it's going to be equal it's going to be i don't know a certain number of months that equally divide into equal number of days every single month i think it was like 13 months or it was like not the same number of months and they renamed all the months and so there's like this brief part in time where like oh my god that's probably why i can't figure out what dates are what it really might because i was uh, i ran across it today because i was doing my research and it was like it gave the regular date and then it also gave the like at the time french date for it and it and the months are all different named um and they were like named after numbers or something i don't i don't remember i don't remember all the details but yeah they just like we're like we're gonna fuck up the calendar <laughs> great thanks for that guys yeah anyway that's all that makes <laughs> sense yeah um so eventually all of his politically motivated bloodshed causes huge disillusion um and his favorite dream of an ideal republic he was looking past the human cost of what it what it means to install that perfect republic so he's hurting the people that he's trying to protect and that's the great mm. irony of robespierre mm. um so and i think that's a tradition that carries on to this day <laughs> yes yes absolute power corrupts or power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely yeah. if you're trying and, to in an absolutist way to make people be a certain way no matter what side of the aisle that is that's you're gonna have some issues exactly and and that's exactly that's literally exactly what happened to him um so his power is now being questioned and uh he is now in the way that he sent so many others to death he is now being arrested um for treason against france for his own bloodshed so um one second i just have uh he they're coming to arrest him and robespierre has a problem with that um so (laughs) he does not want to be arrested he does not want to be put to death he doesn't want to go into uh french prisons which uh, historically, not great places, including the Bastille. The Bastille yeah. uh, held a lot of very famous prisoners who documented their time. The Marquis de la Sade is one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they talk about all of the tortures and corruption and cruelty that happened in there being mm-hmm. beyond the pale, being beyond what was just. Um, so Robespierre knows what's what's going on with that, uh, and he wants to avoid it. Sure. Things are amping up. They're getting ready. Uh, people are trying to remove Robespierre's power. Uh, and eventually put him in jail. And uh, people are now speaking against him. Uh, so they go to arrest him uh, around 1 or 2 p.m. Of what day, though? Why would you guys not put the date on there, but you put the time of day? Calendars, man. Right? Fucking them up. So Robespierre is going to be arrested. 
Uh, everybody in this convention is now voting against him because he's got too much power. Mm. Um, and so uh, they're pissing him off and, and he's in, he's in this tribunal. He knows he's going to be arrested. He says, he basically says, fine, save the country without me, which is, come on. <laughs> oh, that's big talk from you, sir. <laughs> oh, we're a big boy. It, yeah. If, if that were a challenge, fine, I guess try and see if you can handle it without me. I'm like, Oh, okay. Right. I guess we will. So Robespierre is going to be arrested. Uh, there's actually a lot of other details about what happens between this committee and Robespierre. And guys, I, I can't, I'm not going to get into all of it. We just don't have that kind of time. Oh God, so no. uh, this scuffle happens and Robespierre, either in attempt to kill himself or defend himself, shoots himself in the jaw. Um, Wait, and- what? Yeah, yeah. He tried to commit suicide. He didn't oh, want to go to prison. No. But other people think that he was trying to uh fight away his conspirators uh who were coming to arrest him and rather than being able to fire the gun the gun was turned on him oh okay um it's also possible that he had put the gun up to his head uh um he was going to kind of shoot through his mouth and one of the gendarmes which is kind of like a police force uh grabbed his arm and ripped it away and it changed the orientation so that he wasn't a successful suicide through mouth and he blew off the side of his jaw Uh, so that's his lower left hand side oh no 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 indeed um so he was he was quite wounded um Uh but he tried to escape so um to avoid capture uh his son took off his shoes and jumped uh from the building landing on some bayonets and got a pelvic fracture. So Wait, also he did? It he was did? actually his son. I'm sorry. Oh. I had the detail wrong. Okay. Um, oh, God. Okay. So the, uh, in addition to that, now Robespierre has this jaw that he's holding to his face. Yuck. Uh, and he's going to the guillotine a few days later. And when they mm. chop his head off, the no. jaw, the other part, the other no. side of the jaw gets severed as well, and his oh. jaw breaks off and skitters across the pavement with his Yuck. tongue just flapping. Yeah. Yes. So he's executed. Um, they actually have many, many pictures of Robespierre with his jaw tied onto his face as he's led up to the um, uh-huh. led up to the guillotine. Yuck. Uh, and so for the rest of the night, in his dead body. Um, was kept in a pine box with his head at a separate box next to him. Was it like um, a little mini box? Pretty much. <laughs> and uh, his shirt is all covered in blood. Yeah. Uh, and it's just a really horrific way to go. Yeah. I thought with a death like that, there would be a lot of ghost stories about Robespierre. Yeah, but there you aren't. Would no? You would think, right? You would also think there would be a lot of ghost stories about the French Revolution, and there aren't. And that was explained in an essay that I read. Uh, preparing for this that basically said the French pride themselves on their rationale (laughs) and ghosts are not part of rationale so they don't tell ghost stories it's not part of their national like psyche like it is in Ireland and the UK and Scotland and Wales Um, so because they're a highly like enlightened people they're basically too enlightened for ghost stories but I did find one that's interesting okay but like is it because originally when you said that I was like, oh, so the people themselves are so enlightened that they don't possibly have any like reason to stick around after death. They're just like, yeah, I'm done. What's in the past is past. You know? Right. Not quite. It's, it's, it's more... just that the people who are still alive just don't care about telling ghost stories. Exactly. It's, it's not part of their French sense. psyche. 
they're too fringe. That's right. Um, but if you get outside of the cities uh, and into the more rural area, that can change. Mm-hmm. Um, so one story that I do want to share with you, because this is called This Podcast is Haunted, not This yeah. Podcast has some real gnarly guillotine stories. This is the part, oh God, I, I want, if there is anyone who, who cares to compile, I just want a, com- a compilation of Gates saying, this is called This Podcast is Haunted, not This Podcast is blank, 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 blank. Jeffrey, you know I love a theme. Yes. You know I love a theme. I will yeah. stick to a theme until my dying day. I love it. All right, so uh, this story is actually from the Storming of the Bastille. Okay. And it's the story of uh, Jean de Abbeville, which I'm pretty sure is how you say that. Okay. Um, So it looks like Jean, G-E-A-N, de Arbenville. So Jean de Arbenville. And he was the son of the Marquis de la Bastille. Okay. Probably not de la, that's Mexican, or that's uh, that's Spanish, forgive me. Marquis Uh, de... The Marquis de Bastille. Um, And so... He was a very kind-hearted individual, and he would go into the Bastille, and he would especially find children. Uh, so w- women who were arrested when they were pregnant would give birth and raise these children inside the Bastille. Mm. They were they were in there as well. How and so, very les miserables. I was indeed. born inside a jail. <laughs> Sorry. You know it was yes. only a matter of time before Les Mis came up. And also for the record, Les I'm Mis- actually amazed we went this far. Les Mis is 1848 revolution. Many people assume that it's the French 1792 revolution, but it is not. I thought it was 1832. I think it's 1848. Because that's like the well, you, up- you're probably right. uprisings and the barricades. Again, well. I didn't look this up today. That's just pulled out of my head. So anyway. I, I love it. That's fine. Um, so these children were, were born and kind of being punished with this torturous environment mm. uh, that they never earned. And so Jean de Abbeville would bring toys and candy and read children's stories to them. Mm. He would come in and he would do that uh, to show kindness and friendship to these children of the Bastille. Nice. And um, his father found out and he was ruining his reputation at court that, that the Bastille was not being managed correctly. It's not and so. Enough. Right, it's, basically. needs to be more sad. <laughs> that's, that's what we need. Let's make those more children sadness. sad. <laughs> so his father threw him out, said, never come back. You're never allowed back in here. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, things were getting ugly against nobility in the street. So the next time Jean de Abbeville came, he came in a peasant's garb. Mm. Uh, he disguised himself. And he went to, allegedly, uh, this one of the particular jail cells uh, was a little boy named Piet, uh, Peter and Margaret, I believe. Sure. And he takes off his costume, and it's it's his their good friend. They'd been missing him. They didn't know where he'd gone or why he wasn't bringing them treats anymore. And he sat down, and he started joyously reading them a collection of stories, um, and just talking to them and making them feel better. And as that happens. It happened to be July 14th Ooh. and the populist uprising comes to the Bastille and they, like I said, they kill all the administrators mm-hmm. and one of the people uh, that they grabbed was this nobly dressed man who had, you know, discarded these peasants clothes, mm-hmm. reading a story to these children. The children swore up and down that he was not like the rest and he didn't deserve uh, whatever they were going to get, mm-hmm. but they, they didn't listen. They were just kids. 
And so they go and they beg, please, can we just say goodbye to him on the day of his execution? Can oh. we say goodbye to our friend? Oh my God. And he go, they go and they say, please, please, can't you get out of here? Is there anything you can do? We're going to miss you so terribly. Uh-huh. And he says, anytime you come to the Bastille, speak my name and I will be there for you in friendship. Now, as you know, the Bastille eventually gets torn down. It gets torn down basically brick by brick Mm. within the year. Um, But allegedly, if a child goes to where the Bastille stood and they say Jean de Abenville, Mm -hmm. his ghost will appear to them Mm. in some sort of friendship and he he will do some sort of nice thing for them. Even if they can't recognize who he is, uh, he will appear and he will do something for them within the next few hours. That's in, in very friendship. cute and lightly spooky. Right? It's like a really nice ghost story. And I'm like, now I got to find a kid. Yeah. And go, go to France. <laughs> Too bad they're so thin on the ground because millennials are killing the baby killing the industry. industry. <laughs> All right. So that's what I have for the French Revolution. Adorable. Um, I wanted to end on a high note. Yeah. So Kind of. I mean, I guess as, as high a note as the French revolution i mean sixteen thousand people died and a lot of them were innocent but at least one of them was nice about it yeah yeah i um i i took some brief notes on the stats and i had something like that i um i had like in the in 1794 they suspend the suspect's right to a public trial or legal assistance so grand jury has to choose either acquittal or death wow those great choices there um, so yeah, they had 300,000 suspects arrested altogether. And I had 17,000 officially executed, but who's to say? And I'm sure my number's a low ball. And then about 10,000 died either in prison or just without trial. <coughs> Here comes Gambit being all loud. Gambit. Hi, baby. Hi, you're so handsome. Sorry, everybody. If you hear him rattling around, it's only Gambit, not yeah. a demon. Hey, you're going to okay, you be on the picture. Happy demon. Okay. <gasps> there he is. All right, Jen, go for it. Okay. So, um, yeah, Reign of Terror, obviously pretty uh, spooky to a lot of people. And like I like that you mentioned that other surrounding countries were pretty freaked out by it. Um, uh, England was one of those countries. Um, we know with the... But not the novel published much later, Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, that kind of deals with this like uh, weirdness of like going between different countries and like having radically different like vibes going on. Um, so yeah, England was like pretty spooked by this whole thing. It actually influenced the rise of the English Gothic novel. Did you really? know that? I did not. So know we that. basically have the French Revolution in part to thank for the goth, uh, the goth movement. <laughs> God bless. So glad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's a, an English statesman, Edmund Burke, uh, wrote that the French Revolution was the most astonishing thing that has hitherto happened in the world. Um, I mean, especially for, like, the, the rich and ruling class to kind of, like, very suddenly and violently have their their comfortable status uh, questioned <laughs> and revoked as uh, pretty uh, traumatic. Um, so that was obviously giving rich people a lot of anxiety. 
Um, and so that influenced um, writers to kind of like work out and express their anxiety by creating um, worlds that involved like supernatural terror and fantasy. Of course, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, if you think about your classic gothic novel, a lot of them happen in very like kind of castle dungeon-y type things that you could compare to the Bastille or you could just think about like, oh, their rich palaces are being like taken over by, you know, terror and anxiety over this time. Um, so yeah, so they're writing these novels about like really spooky, large ca- castles and dungeons and stuff. Um, and so there's these themes of violence and chaos because that's again what rich people around the world are feeling around about this time. Um, and uh, some of them kind of like uh, rebel against that. There's kind of like a, a reactionary reaction to it where these gothic novels also enforce um, a sense of political normalcy and traditional morals. So um, one of the best examples of this is um, the writings of Anne Radcliffe, who I've never heard of before. I don't know. I don't know if any, like, I'm sure, you know, people who are really into the history of Gothic literature know who Anne Radcliffe is, but she's Dr. Janette Laredo doubt, doubt, that's doubtless knows. Yeah. That's, she immediately came to mind. Um, right. And so yeah, her work, she was widely celebrated in her own time, which is kind of wild because this is still like the 1790s. Um, and she wrote, um, you know, very classic, spooky, like high gothic, you know, atmospheric novels. Um, she also wrote a lot of female characters who were very submissive and incapable of making their own decisions, holding up patriarchal Gross. values. That's probably, why we showed, That's heard of her. probably why we don't really care about her today. Um, so she was very influential at that time. But it's also important to add that uh, the Enlightenment movement and the revolution also kind of kick-started the early feminist movement too. So, you know, we have kind of both of these things going on. It's not just one way or the other. Um, he, our, our girl Mary Shelley's dad, William Godwin, wrote um, a novel that was not like specifically super gothic, but it was like very much a reaction to um, the French Revolution kind of idea ideas and I think he was kind of pro that I don't know it was kind of hard to understand but that does seem kind of on brand for him um and he was also an early somewhat feminist you can't really use that term specifically but you know um right and of course he, he was married more about the egalitarian yeah, relationship between men and women Mary Wollstonecrafts and she was you know a bomb ass bitch bomb ass bitch that's right so I didn't come here just to talk about gothic literature, uh, but it does kind of play into what I'm going to get, what I'm really going to talk about, which is the Phantasmagoria. Do you have any idea what the Phantasmagoria is? Not a fucking one. Good. Uh, because I had heard this term. I, I was like, oh yeah, Phantasmagoria. I know what that is. And then I read on and I was like, I have no idea what this is. Uh, so, so can I guess? Yes, please do. Okay. Phantasm is like mm-hmm. paranormal spooky. Yeah. Magoria is like a term for sideshows, right? Mm, I don't know specifically, but that's kind of on the right track. So okay. I'm going to go with your right. Um, so yeah, it, it comes from a mishmash of two Greek words, 
didn't specifically say which Greek words. I'm sure it's out there, though. But it roughly translates to um, the summoning of ghosts or image Ooh. playing. Oh. So what we're doing is we're introducing uh, kind of optical illusions into a theater setting specifically to create a spooky atmosphere. Like, um, they do that. They, mm, Sherlock? I feel like one of the Sherlock Benedict Cumberbatch stories covers that. Oh, I, was, I immediately thought of The Illusionist, uh, which oh, yeah. was, you know... The year, Edward Norton. Yeah, the year of the two magician movies. <laughs> and of course, I was uh, I was team other magician movie with Hugh Jackman. The Prestige. Um, the Prestige. I, I've watched that also, 50 million times. Yeah, I've seen that one way. I think I've seen The Illusionist once and I've seen The Prestige a million, a million times because I, I love a Christopher Nolan. better and David Bowie's in it. And David Bowie's in it and Michael Caine. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I love Michael Caine. Christian Bale. Um, all-star cast Rebecca Hall I think um anyway Rebecca Hall anyway yeah uh, uh magician movie uh feuds aside uh <laughs> this was more <laughs> this was more in the vein of the illusionist because it was it was a type of horror theater um so they use what were called magic lanterns which are basically early projectors to project images of spirits, demons, skeletons, and other terrifying images, and they could be projected onto walls, or they could be projected from behind onto a screen, um, yes. or into smoke. Yes. So I think the, sh- the Shakespeare, huh? the Sherlock episode I'm thinking of, has like a ghostly bride in white, and she... They shine a light behind her through like a mirror and that reflects up to a smoke screen. And so it looks like she's coming Why out of I that. I not remember this episode. Was it in the season three that I've just like put out of my mind? You know what? Let's stop. That's okay. I don't remember. Oh, the abominable bride. Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. Jeffrey. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. That makes me feel better. Okay. And also, this happened five years ago, so it's fine that we forgot. It's fine that we forgot. It wasn't that good anyway. Only seasons one and two are the, the only Sherlock seasons I recognize. Um, Valid. So, The Abominable Bride is an episode of the British television program Sherlock. The episode is broadcast, blah, 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 depicts the characters of the show in an alternative timeline, the Victorian London setting of the original Conan Arthur Doyle. <laughs> Beautiful, Jeffrey. Okay. Beautiful. Um, so, yeah. So, what we have is... Um, uh, kind of magicians just uh, kind of making spirits out of its its early like pre Pepper's Ghost kind of horror theater. Um, pre Pepper's Ghost. Oh, do you know what Pepper's Ghost is? I don't. That is a staging technique where um, to make people look ghostly, you will have and and this is used in the Haunted Mansion too. So all you Disney nerds. Um, you have, I'm trying to think of it, you have someone, a real person standing with a light shining on them. So you see them being lit up by light. They, in front of them, is a piece of angled glass. Yeah, like I just said. Oh. And like the smoke screen in between. No, there's no smoke screen. But the, the, the reflection of the light on the person reflects into the glass and then will bounce a different direction. Yeah. So that the audience. Yeah, I think that's what they did on Shakespeare or Sherlock. Why do I keep saying Shakespeare? I don't know. Because I haven't dialyzed today, so I'm a little dumber on Wednesdays. These both start with an SH. Anyway, so Pepper's Ghost is a way that they would make people look like ghosts. 
in theory. That's so cool. Yeah. So and I don't know exactly. So that's a type of phantasmagoria? I don't think so. I don't know exactly when that started, but phantasmagoria okay. is more, they would, I think, use more like illustrations instead of real people to make, oh. to look like skeletons or like, you know, spooky, spooky ghosts. Um, and so they would use the projectors, um, called magic lanterns. They would usually be out of sight, either behind the screen or, you know, somewhere hidden. So people didn't really know what was going on because remember this is pre photography. This is pre cinema. Um, so like it's going to make this audience sound like kind of dumb for not really knowing what's going on. But remember when, there's like a famous story of like the first time there was a, uh, um, you know, a moving picture was of a train coming into station. This is of course in like 1890s or something. So this is like a century later. Um, but like that, like the people in the audience, like freaked the fuck out because they thought it was a real train coming at them. So like, if you had never, and they thought they were going to get hit, you had never seen, a film before this is going to freak you out and so like that you know these people hadn't seen something like this before um you, there's just so much general generational knowledge built into just growing up with film in your life um that they were genuinely terrified of these shows but they also they loved them i mean it's like it's their horror genre um so anyway so they uh these shows they would add to the atmosphere by having lights dimmed and they would have spooky decorations they would have like audio where they would have like people like you know being the voices of the spirits and and also just making general spooky atmosphere noises um they would include like other sensory stimulation like smells and even electric shocks um oh so it was like 4D theater. Oh, yeah. This is like you're at Disney, you're at the Bugs Life show, and you're just feeling all kinds of stuff. <laughs> feeling and smelling and seeing all the senses. I'll be honest. Those are actually like my favorite kind of shows. They're very good. I, like, I love Honey, I Shrunk the Audience the most. <laughs> I don't know if I've seen that one, but they're very I think they took it out a couple of years oh, ago. Sad. Um, so yeah, they were also, they would also hold these shows late at night to kind of encourage the audience to be fatigued and hungry. And so like, kind yeah. of like not really able In your to, right mind. yeah, they wanted to like to kind of catch them off their guard and, and, and really freak them out. Um, and they also encouraged drug use. <laughs> To further prime well, the audience. it was 1890s. Or, Everybody was on no, heroin no, no. for this cough is syrup. 17, 1790s. This is... Oh. This is immediately post-French Revolution. I wondered if we'd gotten very off theme. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. no. I promise you. I pro Yeah. I suggest... I was like, oh, I'm going to talk about uh, Phantasmagoria. And you're like, uh, okay. And I was like, I promise. This is on topic. <laughs> you did promise me. I remember. I promise. I promise. Um, I hate it when we get off theme. <laughs> we make up the rules. There are no rules. <laughs> there are rules, Jen. There are no rules. We make up this show. So yeah, they, they encourage the audience to kind of like be at the most prime, you know, uh, emotional state to experience this. Um, the roots of the Phantasmagories actually date back to the 16th century or so. Holy shit. Right? Yeah, this is way older than you think it is. Um, so they, they were 
just learning how to create projected images, they would use uh, concave mirrors, uh, which is like that big, like bubbly looking mirror. Um, they'd also use camera obscuras, which were um, a, a kind of like very kind of rudimentary projector where it would just take literally what was, you know, it would take a scene that was like in front of a lens and mm -hmm. it would project that same scene, I think like upside down or something. Yes, something um, like that. If you know anything about Vermeer's techniques, he would use a camera obscura uh, to paint his paintings. Um, so. I was just about to tell you that, oh. but I figured you already knew because I know you love Vermeer. I'm a huge Vermeer nerd, so and I've seen Girl with a Pearl Earring. It's <laughs> also in that. <laughs> I've never seen Girl with a Pearl Earring because I can't stand Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, um, that's fair. But I love the book. I love the book, and I I like the movie because I love the book, and I also saw the movie pre uh, ScarJo being like, oh, I can play an Asian woman. It's fine. Oh, actually, that's not my problem with her. I don't know what my problem... I mean, I hate that, too, yeah. but uh, I don't know what it is I hate about her, but I super hate her. I get it. I... Sorry, ScarJo. You're probably a really nice person. You know, she's fine. She's got a, a ton of fans. She's doing okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so they would use um, whatever technology they had at the time, um, but it really took off in popularity at the in the last decades of the 18th century with the rise of romanticism and gothic Sure, of course. I don't know if there's a good way to say gothicism or gothic, I don't know. Just the gothic? The gothic uh, novel or aesthetic. Anyway. Aesthetic, yeah. Um, so, yeah, be, uh, because... Um, of gothic novels, people had this, and, you know, the general anxiety they had over the French Revolution, people had an obsession with the kind of bizarre and supernatural, um, and so magicians began incorporating more magic lanterns in their shows, um, but the, the one who really made it, um, the most famous and was the best at it at, in the 1790s was Etienne Gaspard, uh, Robert, um, or Robertson, nice. <laughs> as he was also known. So uh, he was uh, Etienne Gaspard Robert, uh, was Belgian. Uh, he was a Belgian inventor and physicist. Um, and he went, decided to go by the stage name Robertson because the English Gothic novel, the Gothic movement was becoming more popular in England. And so he wanted to kind of carry tap on, into that. tap into that popularity. I see, see, it's all coming together. It's all coming, it's all together. coming together. I love a theme. <laughs> it's all on theme. I, I promise I had, everything has a reason. Um, so he referred to his magic lanterns as phantoscopes. Great name. Yeah. And pretended that it was something different, you know. Um, so in his shows, he would turn off all the lights, uh, lock the doors, which does not sound, this is pre-fire code. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, so he locked the doors and then moved his phantoscopes around behind the screen to make the images uh, appear to be moving. Uh, he would move the, the projector closer and further away to make it the images bigger and smaller. Uh, he would include sound effects such as thunderclaps, bells ringing, and ghost calls. Um, he his first phantasmagory um, was presented in nineteen or was presented in seventeen ninety seven in Paris. So this is in like pretty immediately post. No, the uh, ninety seven. It's still going on until ninety nine. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, that, so I was a little confused on the timeline too. Maybe not in the heart of the Reign of Terror, but gotcha. which was a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, but certainly 
in the heart of upheaval. Yeah, so it's like maybe a, a year or two past the reign of terror. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think, if, you know, that would kind of stick in your brain and kind of like yeah. be on your mind a little bit. There must have, especially because of all, of, like everything was so public. These executions were very public. Mm-hmm. People would parade decapitated heads around the streets. Yeah. They would put them on pikes. Yeah. It was, I mean... I can't imagine what that does to the national psyche. And that was kind of what I was, like, really interested in. And I ended up finding more about how it affected England than how it affected France, which is weird. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure the information is out there. I just didn't really find it. Um, But, yeah, I'm just so... Like, I can't imagine what that would do to the national consciousness of, like, yeah, we got our freedom, and then, oh, God, okay, things maybe got out of hand, or maybe you're for it. I don't know. But anyway, so it was, like, right after this was all happening, and so the macabre atmosphere kind of, like, struck a chord with the people of France, and they were just like, yeah, this is really what we want to see. So (laughs) I guess. um, I guess once you see a bunch of real heads on pikes, you kind of, like, you're like, okay, cool. This is, I'm kind of I mean, that's kind of what I think, like, think about all the generations of of socialized humans who were going to public executions and like bear baitings and stuff oh yeah i think it makes you more callous and that's why it used to be so easy to beat your children yeah yeah we've gotten a lot more sensitive to to violence over which i'm fine with i think we should be sensitive to violence i think we should too i think that keeps me from going on a spree i think that's a net good i mean yeah um so anyway so they were really they were really interested in these shows um uh uh, Robertson and he called them gothic extravaganzas. Um, he <laughs> this he created this famous like running show in an abandoned cloister kitchen of a capuchin um, capuchin I don't know convent near mm-hmm. the Place Vendome, um, and he he decorated it in what they called Radcliffian decor, which is a reference to Anne Radcliffe, the English author. Um, so. Uh, and he so he staged it to uh, to the shows to be like hauntings with special effects, creating an eerie tomb-like atmosphere. So like you're walking into this like stone cloister, and and he's kind of like creating this show about uh, like oh here are all the ghosts that live here, and you know it's just very spooky and atmospheric. I'd like to go. Um, it ran for six years. Um, so people were really into it. Um, and he, he liked making his figures appear to move around in environments. Uh, like there was one show that featured ghosts and skeletons moving around with like a lightning filled sky. And then he would like have the lightning sounds and all that. Um, That's so cool. Yeah. And, and then, he, uh, he, and then he had some assistants would create voices for the spirits and they like stand off and like, you know, um, make it sound like they're the voices of the ghosts. And, Uh, The audience would often forget that this was all fake and were terrified. And I imagine, yeah, like if you have, if you're not exposed to that and you're, this is your first time seeing something like this, it must, like you can create some pretty compelling looking fake ghosts and that would be pretty spooky. I would love to see the, do they have any of the images saved that he used? They, I, I don't know if they have any original stuff. There's like a lot of like illustration, like woodcuts of like, you know what it might have looked like, but I don't. I don't know offhand when those were made, and they might sure. have been much later. Who knows? 
Um, but uh, anyway, he was quoted as saying, um, I'm only satisfied if my spectators shivering and shuddering raise their hands or cover their eyes out of fear of ghosts and devils dashing towards them. Cool. Which I think is delightful. Um, and like people were so taken in by this show um, and he, he tailored many of his shows to be specifically about different figures in the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror. And so he would, like, reproduce the ghosts of Robespierre or something like, you know, so there's all your revolutionary ghosts. So I guess, like, as far as, like, the French culture, maybe they don't have as much of a, uh, a long-standing culture of ghost stories. But within this time period, and maybe it was, like, the effect of other cultures who do have a tradition of that coming into France and being like, Hey, look at this. And Mm -hmm. at the moment they were like, okay. Um, (laughs) I'll happily look at anything besides his head in a box. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, he, he, he did a, a bunch of like stories specifically about the revolution. So many people were convinced that the shows were real, that authorities temporarily halted the shows fearing that Robertson had the, actual power to bring Louis the 16th back to life. No. They thought it was that real. They thought that they were like here's a fucking necromancer. He's going to bring the king back and that's going to wreak all kinds of havoc so we just can't have this. Wow. <laughs> Which is Did he have to explain to the courts how he was doing it? Um he, I don't think he did then. They they like let him continue, but then shortly after that he did have to explain it to the courts because his assistants started putting up their own um, competing shows around the city. And he was like, no, you can't do that. Um, he sued them basically for copyright infringement or, or Who trademark. Who knew that they had IP back in the I, 1700s? Right. And so he had to, in order to uh, successfully shut them down, he had to explain in court how he did his shows to prove that it was his um, technology and his yeah techniques that's very interesting yeah uh, but that didn't quite stop it and soon magic lantern shows began to spread across europe and into the u.s um, but none of them were quite as elaborate as robertson's uh, and so yeah that's the most famous uh phantasmagoria uh guy in history so it reminds me of a couple other things that would come later mm-hmm. um so first off the idea of using the the horror of the reign of terror as uh, entertainment f- fodder. Mm-hmm. Marie Tussaud does that. <gasps> yeah. She, uh, the, the wax figures mm-hmm. uh, that show the decaying bloody heads. I, yeah. I that that comes out of this time too, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yes, it does. Um, to make entertainment of something so horrible mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense to me because it allows you to, kind of box up the real thing and put it away. I think that's very compelling. I think that's one reason why a lot of people like horror as a genre because it lets you kind of tap into those anxieties and fears in a safe and compartmentalized way where you're like, that's happening to someone else. I can feel those feelings of like fear and adrenaline, but then I can put the book away or I can exactly. walk out of the theater and go and live my life and not have to and deal with that. And be free of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, I also do want to reference, um, he's kind of a, he's kind of a local big deal and he doesn't come into, he's a Victorian era figure um, in the Tri-Cities, which is Grand Haven, Spring Lake and Ferrysburg. Mm-hmm. And um, he specifically was 
probably born in Spring Lake. We don't have great records about it, but his name was Windsor McKay. <gasps> Girl. Good. I've done so much um, on Windsor so McKay lately. I like Windsor McKay. Windsor McKay uh, was a great storyteller mm-hmm. and an early animator and uh, cartoonist. Yep. He actually, um, on one of the school's drawing boards, mm-hmm. like a chalkboard in Spring Lake Township, uh, he as a young man drew the sinking of the Lusitania. No. And it was so good that his... Hmm? I'll fact check you on that. No. He drew the sinking of the SS Alpina in Lake Michigan. <gasps> you are and then also later, correct. But I feel like he later, also did the Lusitania. Later, when he was already a famous cartoonist, because this was in 1914 when the Lusitania sank, he was a famous cartoonist in New York. And yes. he drew a, a, a real-time... Um, animated short film of the sinking of the Lusitania, which is on YouTube. Okay. Yes, it is. Uh, along with his most famous piece, Gertie, Gertie the, the Dinosaur, dinosaur. Mm-hmm. and Curse of the Rarebit Fiend. Dream um, of the so Rarebit. Curse of the Rarebit Fiend. Dream of the Rarebit Fiend. I wrote, I wrote oh, a whole I'm so proud essay of you. <laughs> on Windsor McKay. Listen, I haven't worked for that museum and for I two wrote, years, okay? I, I uh, wrote an online exhibit about him. You can check it out online. <laughs> Do it. Tell them. Tell them tricitiesmuseum.org, right? I don't, I don't know yeah. the URL to our own website. Well, it used to be tchm.org, but I can't. I remember. think it's Tri Cities Museum. Anyway. Yeah, they changed it somewhere along the way. It used to be like Tri Dash Cities Museum. Anyway, anyway, that's the museum that's, Jen and I have worked for. That's where I work. Don't come um, find me, please. Um, yeah, don't be a creep about it. <laughs> Uh, but definitely check out some of the online stuff. Also, if you look at any of our digital shit, it's all mostly stuff I made. So, yeah. except for go. the online exhibit, um, I made that. Right, that's Jens. <laughs> so, teaming up through the years. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, Windsor McKay uh, also um, interacted with Gertie the dinosaur mm, in that way, yeah. where she walks away, she comes closer, she breathes, and it was a huge, uh, influential piece to, and it all comes full circle to us Disney adults, Walt himself. Yes, yes, there yep. is Gertie's ice cream shop in a Disney park, Echo Lake. Okay, I don't know. You can get Gertie. Probably. Gertie dinosaur yeah. ice You can cream. get Gertie ice cream, though. Um, and that's cool, because that all started in Spring Lake, where Jen and I got our museum start. So, there you go. Um, all right. So, is it... Are that's, we done? Do we have a yeah, listener story? Yeah, I, I, can, I can pull up a listener story here. Pull up a listener story, boo. Okay. So, we have a listener story, and this one comes from Joseph and Daniel... Um, so a rare email, not from a, a woman, I assume. <laughs> yeah. And from two I dudes know. even up in our quota. Oh yeah. Welcome. Um, so they write, uh, Hey, spooky ladies. Um, or I guess just Joseph is writing, but, uh, my name is Joseph and I am a longtime listener. First time listener story emailer. This experience Yay. is safe for Jen. Thank you. It includes no clowns or haunted dolls. Thank you for God that. God bless. Uh, so this story below takes place around 2009. Very good year. I don't know. I was, this was a while ago. Um, it was. That was the year I met Damon. Oh, hey there. Um, so when me and my siblings were younger, we moved around the country a lot due to our mother being an artist. Uh, one place we moved to was for a few months was a small artist residency close to San Francisco. The residency had a few houses that were turned into duplexes, multiple buildings with studios, offices, and a main building with a full kitchen slash cafeteria to feed all the artists. That sounds That's dope. cool. Um, 
Sounds very San Francisco. It does, yeah. The property and buildings were older, and since I've always loved architecture, I took the first day to explore all the buildings I could. Most were kind of dirty or in need of repair on the outside, and the interior had kind of a 50s feel, but young me knew the buildings were way older, and I could feel like they had, and I, I felt like they had some kind of history. We had a house turned into a duplex with an attic shared by both sides. Both sides had a door with a lock from your side into okay. the attic. Uh, we also shared our half of the house with a younger woman who had her own room on the first floor. We'll call her Angie. So I, I just want to take a second to explain our sleeping arrangements. On the second floor is a long hall with three bedrooms and a bathroom with a tall staircase leading up from the first to the second floor. Me and, my, and me and my brother shared a room right next to my mother's in front of the, of the top of the stairs, and my sister had a room to herself right across from the bathroom. Okay. Days go by, we're all, and we're all settled in. No big incidents occur, and then the shadow people came. No, I hate shadow people. Ooh, okay. I started seeing these small shadow movements out of the corner of my eye. It seemed to be of a child height and zipped across doorways into bathrooms and would peek around corners. At first, I thought it was literally just shadows, but I knew something else. I knew something was up when I would see the shadow move and the shadows from the sun around the TV set or lamp would remain absolutely the same. Hard pass. Oh my God. I would also see them day and night. I was going to be my next question. Ooh. After a few days, I talked to my brother about it, and he said he had been seeing the exact same thing. No. He told me one night when he awoke to get some water, so he, he crawled out of bed and headed for our door, which was open, and as soon as he put his foot on the floor, he saw what appeared to be a taller adult shadow figure peek its head into our room quickly and then walk across the door frame. Oh. Kind of like a parent checking on their child. I Which, hate that kind of sentience. Uh, yeah. Very brief and was gone a split second later. My brother, who is uh, very brave, went <laughs> room to room to check on the family. We were all still dead asleep. These shadow figure appearances continued for the duration of our stay. It never felt like a bad spirit or a spirit family. Other artists and employees never mentioned any spirits or activities on the ground, so I just let it be. A few days before we left is when the big incident occurred. Tell me. It was late Friday night, and my family and I were sleeping soundly when the sound of someone with boots walking down the hall broke the night silence. Pass. No thank you. It, it went from the staircase all the way down the hall. My brother and I sat straight up at the same time. Ooh, it lasted for about 12 steps, the distance of the hall. The steps were piercing and sharp. They weren't boot thuds like rain boots, but like loud boot clicks like cowboy boots. Or like the boots that I have. I love a good clicky boot. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, a few seconds after the steps ended... We both got up and opened our door and looked down the hall, but we're surprised to see my sister peeking out of her room with no. my mother doing the same. Oh my God. When the we, adults get involved, that's a bad yeah. sign. And also like people in different 
rooms all yes. hearing the same thing. Yes. That's spooky. Um, we all looked at each other and I said, did you guys hear that? To which my mother uh, replied, yes, I definitely did. We searched the house and all is well and nothing is out of place. Everything is locked. We go back to bed, but I tell you, it was very uncomfortable to sleep. I bet. Yeah. We went downstairs in the morning to get ready to walk to the cafeteria when we saw Angie in the living room. We asked her if the neighbors were home last night and if maybe they went to the shared attic above us or had a party. She said that all the neighbors were out of town for the weekend on a camping trip. <sighs> that info made us all uneasy. At breakfast, I finally talked to one of the artists I had befriended and, and asked him if about our house and if any activity he might have known about. He told me that the house we were in had always had some activity in it because we, me and my siblings were younger. They didn't want to tell us and frighten us. They also told me that all the buildings on the grounds and in the entire artist residency campus was a post-Civil War fort and a general and his family had lived there in the late 1800s. Licky soldier boots. Mm, I instantly flashed back to the Civil War documentaries I watched as a kid with all the generals and the captains and their big riding boots. That's so cool. Yeah. I didn't ask any follow-up questions, and I'm unsure if anyone passed away there, but I'm pretty sure it was the general and his family. That's so cool. Yeah. We left a few days later to a new town and a new residency. I will always remember that residency. Also, my mother did not believe in spirits or ghosts during the stay, but at the end, she was about a 50-50 believer. <laughs> <laughs> I love that happens. Everyone hears that, and she's like, maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, so much love, Joseph and Daniel, uh, which I think are the two brothers. Uh, P.S. If you need any more stories, just let me know. My brother and I worked as security for a haunted bar in Montana for a few years. Yes, obviously. Yes, oh, yeah. obviously. Yeah. We, also, as which you know, bar? I'll send Luke. As you know, we love a good haunted bar. Um, I will tell you the haunted bar. He included it, but he asked us not to read it out loud, so I will tell you after. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that is our uh, listener story. That was fantastic. Thank you so much for sending that in. Yeah. Um, now I need huh. to pull Do up. we have a Patreon people? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We have a, a few different patrons we need to thank. Um, so first we uh, need to thank Marin L. Marin! Thank you. Um, and then we have Mason Woods, who edited their pledge. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you, Mason. I don't think you're in our group, but if you're not, get in there. I don't know. Um, next we have Carrie Myers. Thank you, oh, Carrie. Oh, hey, Carrie. And then we have Lonnie DeFevre. Yes, yes, so, yes. All people we know and love. Thank you all so much. Um, if you want to find us on Patreon, we are at patreon.com slash thispodcastishaunted. We do silly videos there, and if you don't care about our videos, then you can just give, you know say thanks for doing what we do. And and, and remember, it all basically Danny. goes to Danny. Yeah, yeah, like it allows us to keep the podcast going because neither Jen nor I have enough time to edit anymore. Yeah, so we can pay Danny to do it. Yeah, that's and great. He's a fantastic person. So, mm -hmm. and he's got a cat named Princess. Yes, he's yes. the best. Yes. 
so yeah, that's our Patreon. Uh, you can find us on social media at the things listed below. I'm too tired to say them. Um, and, <laughs> uh, you can email us your story. We, uh, I could use some more stories, you know? Yeah. We are actually kind of getting through our backlog, which We're, is pretty are, cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, feel free to email us a spooky story to, to read on the show. Um, and that's this podcast is haunted at gmail.com. Um, gmail.com. Yes. <laughs> so, I don't know why I sang that. Yeah, you gotta. Um, okay. So we, uh, will be back in a fortnight. I will be fully vaccinated by then, so maybe we can do it in person. I don't know. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'll be one day short of full vaccination. I get my shot, second shot tomorrow. Ooh, baby. So we could maybe do episode 95 as the great reunition. The great get back together. We do it. Reunion is the word. Reunion. That's the word I want. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm so tired. Uh, Okay. On that note, (laughs) we'll see you in a fortnight. And stay spooky, motherfuckers. (laughs) 